Shalom Nasu. So now we come to the end of the Shamatha cycle. I'm sure you're anticipating the calisthenics up, right, left, and so forth. There is a, a certain, to my mind, satisfying symmetry between the practices we're doing in the morning, the four measurables, and especially the kind of the culmination of this, as we did this morning, and this final phase of the shamatha without a sign. And both of them are really, in complementary ways, mind-expanding. So if we review very, very quickly this morning, as we're cultivating this equanimity, we just opened the awareness up, and whoever came to mind, we attended to them, but not simply as an appearance, not simply as an object, an object of attraction, an object of aversion, an object of indifference, but very, con to very much to the contrary, shifting out of a somewhat habitual pattern of I-it relationship, where people are just to be manipulated, to an I-you relationship, where we're really attending to the subjectivity of the other person. And in this way, it exp expands the field of the mind, really, let's say, expands the field of the heart in the sense of expanding the field of caring. How many people do we really care about? So again, I think back to a conversation with His Holiness Dalai Lama quite a few years ago, maybe in, maybe in the year 2000, when he again, just a very brief review, speaking how we have a certain biological imperative, especially women, and especially women for their children, that just an instinctual, this, this one you must care about, this one is part of you, this one is not an it, this one you really take care of, and then that may go for the father as well, may or may not, and then it expands outward and outward. But the biological is fairly narrow. It's to one's own progeny, to one's own clan, to one's own tribe, tends to be. So one has no problem at all slaughtering, butchering, torturing other tribes, but one's own tribe, now that's a, diff that's a different deal, or one's own family or one's own body. And so in the cultivation of all four of the four measurables, we're expanding the field of the heart, of expanding the field of caring, which as His Holiness points out, this comes through cultivation. It doesn't necessarily come through just naturally or biologically, but it can be cultivated, and that's the really, really good news. And how do we do that? And I keep come back, coming back to my favorite English mantra from William James, for the moment what we attend to is reality. And that is just by attending closely, taking into account, attending closely, looking after, watching over, caring for, attending to, tending to, all of that being the etymology of this one word, attention, then others become more real, the empathy starts to naturally arise, and then the caring flows, and there we are. Then we're on the fast track to the four measurables and eventually breaking down all the barriers. So, so much for the, the, for the morning practices. And now we move into this more cognitive realm, this cognitive realm of just expanding the space of the mind, right? And of course, you know how we do it. Just directing the attention straight up into space, as far as your awareness can reach, expanding it that way, almost like being inside a balloon and just blowing up, blowing to the right, the left, down. And, so, and then just finally going supernova and just trying to expand in all directions. And experientially, I think as many of you have already found out, in doing this, not visualizing the mind getting larger, but just actually ex 
attending out farther. The spaciousness, the experience spaciousness of that domain of the mind does increase. Such an interesting topic, this, to my mind. It's very interesting. And that is, if you attend closely to the space of the mind, as, for example, you do in settling the mind in its natural state, so you're not only attending to the foreground, but also the background, the stage, on which the various players, the thoughts and images come and go, when you attend closely to that space, I think a number of you have already found that there's a lot of things not found. And that is, can you see the ex exact perimeters of the, of the space of your mind? Does it have a shape? Does it have a size? Does it have a center, a periphery? Does it have color and so forth? But especially this issue of shape and size, and you look for it, and I suspect you probably haven't found it, right? So fair enough, quite true. Experientially, though, clearly the space of the mind does have some limits. And that is, we, unless you're clairvoyant and you actually have the ability of remote viewing, you can actually perceive things far away, then mentally we are limited. We can only see this far and not further. Right. Likewise, in terms of time, we're limited in terms of what we can attend to, what we can really make real. But then we can raise it to my mind a, a one more fascinating point. I really find nothing more fascinating than the mind in the entire universe. That's my favorite topic. Uh, but if we consider that the mind, even if we can't identify its borders, its periphery, and so forth, we may ask, how porous is it? How porous? And that is, does anything flow in and out? Since our mind streams are discrete. So where you go, there goes your mind stream. There goes your substrate consciousness. It's localized in space, right? It's related to your physiology. It's, it's connected to you. And so where you are, there goes your psyche, your coarse mind. But there goes also this subtle continuum of mental consciousness, or the substrate. But how porous is it? A number of you, quite a number of you by now, uh, now that we're now more than three weeks into this retreat, you're commenting that whether during the waking state, while settling the mind in its natural state, other forms of shamatha, or for a number of you in your dreams, you're now having some really old material coming up, especially if you're really old. Uh, but even if you're fairly young, you know, quite a few years old. But memories, people, events that you hadn't thought about for years now coming to mind, coming to mind. And so temporally speaking, the space of your mind, that one domain out of six domains of experience, the space of the mind is becoming more porous to the past, right? That is, imprints, memories, and so forth stored in the substrate consciousness, they're starting to flow up, and the past highlights, flashes of light on episodes in the past, they come looming into the present. So you see a certain porosity in terms of this present space of your mind and access to memories that were long gone, probably you thought irretrievably gone, and lo and behold, the mind has become porous tempor temporarily. Some of you have had, as I mentioned, I think this, this morning, Intuitions, hunches that something is really going on with a loved one, some, some close person, a friend, and so forth. Enough, in a few cases, you feel moved to go and check out the email, and lo and behold, you are right. Okay? So something perhaps coming through. Maybe it's not just imagination or mere coincidence. That's always the easy non-explanation, because it doesn't explain anything. Maybe there actually is something to be explained. Maybe there is something coming in from outside. So we see in both of these ways, the, most, the more cognitive, 
or just the, in the whole, whole realm of caring, of loving kindness, compassion, and so forth, the mind can, can become quite small. So when we, when we say in English, this person is very small-minded, very small-minded, right? Then this would imply, really, the space of this person's mind is quite contracted, maybe out to the skin and not much for, okay, out to my iPhone, my skin and my iPhone. I mean, these things really count, right? The things that I identify with strongly, and I feel, how could I live without you, you know? Uh, but then kind of stops. I mean, those are not my iPhones. Those really, if I step on them, it doesn't really matter, because after all, they're, they're not my, my iPhone. What's it to me? I'm, I carry my in my hands, you know? I don't put them on the floor, you know? And so that would be very small-minded, right? You care about your iPhone and nobody else's iPhone. So small-minded, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. It's a nice phrase, both in terms of the affective from the heart, is when we're enclosed in a very small space, very small space, this person's so self-centered, and that is the mind is contracted around the nucleus of me, I, me, mine, and especially if we're wandering around in this dust cloud of Pigpen, the cartoon character, of I, me, mine ruminations, then that's just bound to make the mind quite small. You know? And it's for a very simple reason. We're not attending outside of our own little dust cloud, our own little dust storm of I, me, mine ruminations. Why should anything appear real to us if we're not attending to it? That was William James with one of his great insights, I think. Those things we attend to, even if they're completely fictitious, like why does Anila think I'm such a disgusting creep? Why does he think that? And I keep on wondering about that and worrying about that. Why? She, I have so much respect for her as a nun. And so she thinks I'm such a creep. And I see it by her facial expressions, the way she walks, it glances at me. Ah, oh, this really gets me down because I have so much respect. But she just doesn't respect me at all. And everything I just said, I think, has no basis in reality at all. Everything I just said was complete fiction. But if I keep on focusing on that, that's what's real for me. And that will influence my relationship with her and then everybody who looks like her, you know, and so forth. So we can focus on something that is completely fictitious, like the little scenario that I just gave. No grounds for that at all. And that becomes real for us. Or we can focus on things real, but then they, we, they loom larger than life. And the things we don't attend to, true or false, they fade back into the realm of fiction, or as William James said, the realm where footless fancies dwell. Just here, not much of anything. So in both of these cases, both in terms of the field of caring, we see that there's, we really have an inflatable, an inflatable domain of experience, a space of the mind. It can become very large. When His Holiness the Dalai Lama travels all over the world, he, just, he seems to do constantly. I've heard him say, and I know he means it absolutely, that wherever he goes, he always feels at home. He never feels that he's unlike, that he's an alien, that he's foreign, that he's really fundamentally unlike the people he's engaging with. Whether that's Muslims in Palestine, whether that's Christians in New York City, whether it's Hindus in, in Benares and so forth, or whether it's atheists in a scientific conference or what have you, he always has that sense. I always feel I'm surrounded with people that I connect with, that I feel family, wherever he goes, right? And why? Because he's attending, he's attending, he's attending. And they're all real for him, as, as he says so often. And it, it flows so naturally from his lips, I think, because it's so utterly true. My brothers and sisters, he travels all over the world, wherever he goes, in any culture, any language. My brothers and sisters. And when we hear it, I think, at least I know and I think this is true for many people, this is not a gimmick. 
This is not a strategy. This is not a ploy. This is just his heart speaking, my brothers and sisters. And we, and we feel, yeah, I can accept that. From you, I can accept that. Somebody else, I think they got an angle. They want something. Hey, brother, can you loan me some money? <laughs> now that we're brothers, can you give me some money? <laughs> oh, yeah. So here we are, to expand the heart, to expand the mind evenly, and then to see how porous, how open to outside influence, and how porous from the inf inside influence going outwards. How expansive the heart, how expansive the mind, knowing, after all, they're really not two. They're really not two. In both cases, we attend. We attend with the heart, we attend with the mind, and the space expands. So that's why we're here, and this is a very nice note on which to bring our tenfold series to its culmination. So let's find a comfortable position. By now, I assume the Pavlovian's response is well established when you hear the bell. Let your awareness descend right down to the ground, to the earth element. Then pervade the field of the body as you settle your body in its natural state, relaxed, still, and vigilant. Complete release and surrender with every outbreath, followed by the effortless inflow of the next breath. Settle your respiration in its natural rhythm. And releasing all concerns about the future and past, set your mind at ease in stillness in the present moment and calm the discursive mind for a little while with mindfulness of breathing.
Let your eyes be at least partially open. Your awareness resting evenly in the space in front of you, taking nothing as an object, not meditating on anything, just being present in the present moment without distraction and without grasping. As you withdraw your awareness from all appearances, all objects, come to rest in the knowing that was already there before you added on anything to it. And that is your awareness of being aware, perhaps your most certain knowledge. Then while gently sustaining that awareness of awareness, direct your attention straight up into the space of the mind as far as your awareness can reach, without visualizing anything. Tendward upwards into the sky without an object. Breathe through your nostrils or through your mouth, whichever gives you the greatest sense of ease, of looseness in the body and mind. Let your awareness come to rest once again in its own place, holding its own ground, 
simply being aware of being aware. Extend your mental awareness, the arrow of your attention out into the space to your right, as far as your attention can reach, but with no target, no object, no visualization. Let your awareness return back to the center, to its own place, resting there, illuminating its own nature. Direct your attention out into the space to your left. Practice as before.
Then release the tension. And let your awareness descend back to its own place. Direct your attention straight downwards into the space of the mind with no impediment, no obstruction, as far as your awareness can reach, with no object. Allow your awareness to return to its own place. Utterly at rest, effortless. Now for a little while, let your eyes gently close. 
And if you have a sense of being located inside the head, up there where your eyes are, your ears are, your mouth, your nose, and of course you can also feel tactily with your head. If you feel that's where you're located, that's where your thoughts are, and that's where you are, see if you can release all grasping. And as if you are stepping into an elevator, let the locus or the point of perspective of your awareness descend to your heart the center of the chest, not by straining, but by utterly letting go. Let your awareness rest in the heart chakra, knowing itself. Once again, letting your eyes be at least partially open. Utterly release your awareness into space in all directions. With no object. Into an open expanse. And ever so gently and effortlessly sustain the flow of awareness of awareness with no other object.
or lasso. Um, a minor point about, no, not so minor, but just a, a very brief point about posture. I think it was Rose. Rose, we'll call you Rose now, yes? Good. Uh, Rose mentioned the, you know, when you get very, very relaxed, the mouth can come open, there can be a bit drooling, yeah? Um, oh, no, it was somebody else, it was, it was, was Lakme, okay. My, I conflated Lakme and Rose. Same problem. That's, <laughs> Both, two droolers, yeah, <laughs> right. You're not the only one. Um, but a little, a little further thought on this, and that is, consider when you're in bed, deep asleep. I, I would be very surprised if any of you are, are falling out of bed. Falling, if we roll over throughout the course of the night. We roll over, we move about and so forth and so on, and we're generally, you know, we're not waking up to say, oh, I think I'm gonna move now. But here we are as adults, and we don't fall out of bed. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? That you're completely withdrawn, you may be deep asleep, or you can be dreaming, which means you're totally in samadhi, in the domain of the mind, and yet you don't fall, you don't fall out of bed. So that means there's some subliminal intelligence there that knows, here's an edge, here's an edge, don't fall over, it will hurt. You know, That's kind of interesting. So what this suggests is even when you're in kind of a deep samadhi, mindless samadhi of deep sleep, or the kind of samadhi with a lot of appearances in a dream, lucid or otherwise, there's still some maintenance of the body, right? Some maintenance of the body. So similarly, even if you're in very deep samadhi, that is in the waking state and you're really meditating, it should definitely be possible to maintain some Unconscious, almost like, as if you put it on autopilot. That's like kind of like that. Autopilot or cruise control in a car. And it's good to make a habit of that. So, for example, I've seen some people who, when they're going into deeper into meditation, really get, getting into the zone, some, I've seen this happen. The head falling over, or falling even like to the side. I've seen this from a very good meditator. I have enormous respect for the meditator. But the head would drop over to the side and really drop down. And I, I know this person. I have a lot of confidence. What's going on inside is really, really good. A very good practitioner. But this is not a very good posture. Especially if you, you know, keep it up for more than a minute or two with a head tip tilted over the side. Or even if you're maintaining symmetry, but your head's dropping forward now as my mouth goes down to the mic. And be meditating like that. Not so good. I think Kimberly could elaborate if, you, if anybody has questions. There's a person who really knows about posture. But I, this is, cannot be a good thing. Am I correct? Cannot be a good thing to have all that, that strain on your neck. And then what's it doing to the rest of the back and the rest of the body for that matter? Uh, if you ever see any of the, the icons of the great yogis of the past, none of them are slumping like that, right? And so two legitimate things to do with the head Slightly inclined, that's from the Indo-Tibetan tradition. Slightly inclined, just a wee bit. Theravada tradition, straight ahead. Boom, like that. Eyes open, close as you like. But to maintain that, even if you're in deep samadhi, that's a habit to be cultivated. But just as we've all learned not how not to fall out of a bed, which babies don't know. That's why you have cribs, right? You have the bars, because babies haven't learned that yet. But by the time they get to be three, what, three, four, I don't know, then they don't fall out of bed anymore, and you don't need the bars anymore. They've learned. They've gotten that body intelligence. That'll hurt. No, you won't like that. Fall out, even if it's only a couple of feet, you won't like that. It'll be quite a shock, just for starters. 
So there it is. It should be possible. And likewise with the mouth. With the mouth. And that is when you just get into that habit that the mouth can be open. I, I had mine open because I, like I like to breathe through the mouth when I'm practicing awareness of awareness. I just find it gives it just a kind of a, kind of a jello quality, a really loose, loose, loose quality to the whole body-mind just to have a large aperture, the mouth, the, 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 you know, the throat, for the breath to flat, flow in and out so there's no impediment. If there's any stuffy nose, allergy, anything, that's out of the way. So even if the mouth is open, I haven't found a problem of drooling. don't think it needs to drool. But, if, but again, as I said before to Lakshmi, the classic instructions there for the posture are to keep the mouth just a, bit, a little bit open, enough. Just so the lips just barely touching or just, just slightly parted. And then just, to, just like a baby learning how, not, how to not fall out of bed when sleeping, just learn how to maintain that posture even in deep, deep samadhi. And then that will serve you well. Okay. So a final thought before we go to the questions. And that is, as we are expanding the heart in the cultivation of the four immeasurables, in this even way with breaking down the barriers. And then in this practice we've just done in the shamatha without a sign, of expanding this, the experienced space of the mind. Number one, I think this is especially helpful and pertinent uh, in the 21st century. I was listening to a lecture just recently. Somebody asked me to check in on and I did. A lecture, it was a very good lecture, actually. I'll just keep it anonymous. Uh, a lot of insight. So it was, I thought, good lecture, very smart, very good insight, meaningful insight. But the person kept on doing something that's absolutely, you know, absolutely common in ordinary English language usage. And that is using the, the words brain and mind and even consciousness and mind interchangeably. As if we finally understood the nature of consciousness, it is the brain. We've understood the mind, it's inside the head. Like, now we've got it figured out. Well, and I'm not going to beat this dead horse, but the truth is scientists do not know the nature of the correlations between subjective experience and neuro neuronal events. They, they are brilliant in finding correlations. And they're getting better and better and more and more interesting. It's outstanding science. But what's the exact nature of those correlations? This is not abuse or disparagement or ridicule or anything. They don't know. So since we don't know, there's no scientific, empirical, or rational grounds at this point. When you don't know, then you just say you don't know for equating mind with brain and therefore saying your mind is inside your head. And this person, when giving this excellent lecture, kept on, now it's when inside your brain, or when inside your head, inside your consciousness, and they'd point to his head. Right? That kind of language pattern, which is not justified by the, by the facts, does, I think, it's not a very subtle subtext to give you the very, how, what else should we conclude than that the space of your mind is really small, about the size of a football. Well, I think we've just discovered that's not true. I mean, when you extended out, I'm sure you went beyond your, beyond your hairline, right? So that it's true. The experienced sense of the space of the mind can be expansive. And this is a way to overcome the impact of some really fallacious language patterns. And it's ubiquitous now. I watch closely the media, and this, this, was, a, this was a YouTube presentation. Uh, but just always saying the, the mind, your emotions are inside the head, your thoughts are in the head, 
This is in the head, in your consciousness. You know, your head, your consciousness, your mind. I mean, it's tomatoes, tomatoes. If scientists eventually demonstrate that the mind is, in fact, the brain, then I will have to pay attention. Show me the empirical evidence, then okay, I just want to know it's real. I don't want Buddhist truths. I don't want English truths. I don't really want scientific truths versus some other kind of truth. I just want what is true. And if anyone, scientists or otherwise, can show that your mind really is inside your head, it's sealed, hermetically sealed, by skull, then I want to know about it, and then I'm going to start living accordingly. But that evidence hasn't come up yet. So there we are. So there we are to expand the sense, the experience sense of, of, of awareness in space. But there's another core theme, and it's so utterly central and not often articulated in the way I'm about to articulate it, but utterly core to Buddha Dhamma, to the Buddha's own teachings. And that is an, ex an expansiveness in time. In time. When we hear in the Buddhist teachings, it's true of all schools of Buddhism, traditional Buddhism, of the beginninglessness of samsara. Does that just, has just, that just stretched your mind back in space? You know, that you've been around since beginning this time, you in one incarnation after another after another? Does that give something of a spaciousness in terms of time? And when we see the practical applications, I was just reading a text last night, a preliminary a set of preliminary practices for Dzogchen, in which a very familiar theme was made by Dujum Lingba, this great 19th century Dzogchen master, that he said, there's, no, not, there's not a sentient being in the universe who has not at some time or another, who has not at some time or another been either your mother or your father. We've, with the, the past is so vast that whatever sentient being you might point to, it's only a matter of, oh yeah, that was 13 billion lifetimes ago, and that was 12, oh, that was only 12,000, hi neighbor, you know, and so forth, but that expansiveness, which then is actually put into practice to provide an epistemic ground for the sense that we are kin, we are kin, we are kin, we're of the same family, you know? And then applying that to compassion, applying that to compassion. So that notion that, and, and oh, I see this, the practical applications, because I've lived with, with traditional people who are raised in Buddhism with their mother's milk. It's the air they breathe, just like I was raised with Christianity on the one side and then science on the other. That was my world. And they were, from my perspective, they were rather schizoid. <laughs> because on Sunday, I got Christianity. I had nothing to say about science. And then five days a week from school, I was getting science, and I had nothing to say about Christianity. And they're very different worldviews. And eh, 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 eh. I was kind of like, would somebody please put this together for me? And the answer was no. <laughs> no, no but there was nobody to put it together. So I said, well, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. This is, just, this is bipolar. This is schizoid. I, I, I can't function this way. I'm supposed to live in one world on Sunday and the other, other six days in a scientific world? And then one very brilliant man, he's, he's, he's now passed away, but his theme here, this would be a brief tangent, but his theme was to try to, almost like you have two quarreling kids that they're just bickering, 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 all they're pulling each other's hair and fighting and punching each other, and the parent after a while just gets fed up. Okay, you two kids, stop it. Alma, see this line? You stay on that side of the line. Cecil, you see this line? You stay on that side. Alma, this is yours. These are non-overlapping magisteria. 
So Alma will get, you get to be religion. And you get to have complete say over values. What do you value? And love and emotions and things like that. But what is a value in the world? So you, but Sasu, you keep out. So there's your line. But this is what you get to be in charge of, okay? Values, subjective values. What do you value? Cecil, you're the scientist here. You get to talk about what's true, okay? And don't mess with that, religion. You, it's just out of your range. You, you, you don't have, see, he's got science. He's got the scientific method. He's got mathematics. He's got logic, experimentation, technology. You don't have any of that. So keep it sweet and soft with, you know, values. Now we're getting real, Cecil. You, you tell us what's true, but don't mess with her. Values, that's not, you know, science is value-free. No values in science. Just the facts, nothing but, but the facts, ma'am. Right? So you tell us what's true, you what's tell us of what's a value, and then you kids will stop quarreling. Science and religion, the problem will be fixed. It sounded like a good idea, I think, for at least three seconds. Until you consider... I think the motivation behind that was good. By a very intelligent man. I think he's well motivated. I mean, he's seen this war of science and religion since the time of Galileo, and actually goes back before then as well. And he wanted to bring it stop. Okay, you know. There's a non-overlapping magisteria, the realm of values, subjectivity, and then objective facts. And how could they be in collision with each other? They're going to be ships passing in the night, right? Except... Alma, how will you possibly value that which you do not think is true? So to say value this, but oh, by the way, I don't know whether it's true or not. I don't know whether it's real or not. Then the notion of valuing anything but being agnostic or wishy-washy or having no opinion about whether it actually exists is simply crazy. You're not going to value a relationship, your body, God, angels, reincarnate, you're not going to value anything, karma, if you don't think it's true. In other words, there's no possible way you can develop a system of values without, having, have, without it having an underlying set of convictions, beliefs, views about what is true, what is real, and what is not real. Because you'll never value that which you don't think is real. How can we? It, it, it would be crazy, right? And then for Cecil, you know, I'm just playing here, of course, but the, the it just here is, is utterly serious. And that is, so you're a scientist. Oh, so you're value-free, are you? You scientists. You're value-free. In other words, when, you, when it comes time to make a decision about what to research, you just throw the dice. Because you don't care. Because you don't value anything over anything else. And so you just go, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, I think I'm going, to I'm going to research Jack's feces. After all, nobody else is. I think I'm going to research Jack's feces. In fact, there's plenty of them coming. I think I can be doing this for a long time. Or I learned about one biologist who was, who was doing his doctoral dissertation on the parasites on the in, in, inside of the intestinal lining of chickens. Parasites on the inside of the intestinal lining of chickens. There's no reason not to study that. Why not? Maybe they'll have some practical value, maybe help chickens who get ill and so forth. But he didn't choose that for no reason. In other words, in, in reality, scientists always choose to study this, not that, because they place very greater value on this and that. And this is no, no time in history has it, this been more true than now, 
because to do, do good science, whether in astronomy or whether in cell biology, in any field of sophisticated science, to do good science, it's expensive. So if you want to do science, you need to get research grants. Who are you going to get them from? Government and private foundations, and occasionally a philanthropist here or there who's keen because he's keen on something. His child has autism. And therefore, he says, would you like $500 million to study autism? He says, yes, please. Suddenly, I value autism. I really want to study autism. $500 million is coming in this direction. And so science is always rightly, there's no sarcasm here, but science is always driven by values. And it should be. And then as we come to know what is true, what is real, we value that and we don't value what we find to be not true. Okay? So, this is related to our practice here, and coming right back to a core theme. In other words, I believe this division, that is, if two kids are quarreling, that's not the way to find peace, but rather through mutual understanding, mutual respect, but not pretending as if these are non-overlapping magisteria. That, to my mind, really doesn't make any sense at all. It's a very pseudo-solution for a very real problem. Okay? Values and reality, values and facts, have to be intertwined, and they always have been. So the notion of science being value-free is ridiculous unless by that you mean bias-free. And science at its best is free of subjective bias, but not free of subjective values. So having finished that, coming back to a core theme in Buddhism, which is, has to do with this expansion of the mind. We look in this expansion of the mind in terms of space. But now, in the teachings of the Buddha, expanding the mind. Now, one area I've seen this have enormous practical value. And it, I say in a way that really, really touches my heart because I was living with Tibetans from 1971 on, and that was only 12 years, a very short time, only 12 years after many of them escaped under absolutely dreadful, terrifying circumstances where they'd be shot, they'd be mowed down if they were caught just trying to flee. That would be, you know, the only, their only crime would be you're trying to escape from Tibet, therefore, out come the machine guns. You know, I knew many, many Tibetans who'd been through that, who'd lost loved ones, just because they were monks, they were lamas, and so forth, lost people in their, in their caravans trying to escape, where half the group were lost, 80% were lost, and their one crime was they're trying to escape. So I've, I've lived with such people closely for years. So nowadays we speak of post-traumatic stress disorder. When I lived in this grubby, impoverished, quite dirty little village called McLeod Gunge in 1971, where there was one public toilet for the whole village and nobody used it because it stank so badly. And I, I kid you not, that was it. But it was just, oh, not me. You know, so it would just sit there, a, lo a lonely toilet, because you know, nobody wanted to go in there. And besides that, the rest of us would just you know, try to find someplace else. But it was poor, it was grubby, it was dirty, and it was not healthy. I got sick unto death a number of times there. Um, and it was, and they're, all, they're all refugees. They've all lost their homeland. And they've lost loved ones. And they've lost all if, or most of their possessions. So this should have been a desperate place only 12 years after they came out. This should have been a really grim place. And these were the happiest, most cheerful and loving people I'd ever lived with as a community. And I'm not just speaking of tukus, monks, lamas. And I'm not being idealistic. This is my experience. And I didn't come up there with rose-tinted glasses. I didn't know what I was getting into. 
but I moved into this village, moved into a Tibetan home, and just seeing the lightness, the cheerfulness, the openness, the warmth, the kindness, but also the optimism, just had an enormous impression on me. It still does, as you can tell. So why weren't they just burning with resentment and wishing to retaliate and get vengeance and strike back when they really were victims here? This was not a retaliation. The Chinese communists doing something against the Tibetans because the Tibetans had treated them so badly. They hadn't. The Tibetans were just sitting up there on their plateau, watching their yaks, meditating, drinking Tibetan tea. You know, nothing the Chinese communists would be really jealous about or upset about. But there we have it, genocide. And so one can imagine immense bitterness, I mean cosmic bitterness, fierce hatred, rage, resentment, and I just didn't see it. Of course anger here and there, no question. But this community was not characterized by bitterness, anger, and so forth and so on. And yet it was only 12 years earlier. So had they forgotten? Had they all taken amnesia pills? Of course not. Of course not. It was very, very fresh memory. And fresh refugees keep on coming down. So in case your memory gets a bit faint, well, just see the, the latest refugee have to, to have escaped over the mountains, come to Dharamsala, and there they are. What's the latest news? Grotesque. Because when I was there, it was right in the middle, right in the middle of the Cultural Revolution. Oh, absolutely ghastly. Un inconceivably awful. Right. And for so many Chinese people, as well as the Tibetan people, and so forth, so inconceivably awful. So how was it? How was it? Were they all yogis? Were they all bodhisattvas, these villagers who are you know, nomads? Just ordinary people. And what saturated the worldview of these people, really, I think, without exception, pretty much, would be an absolute conviction in karma. Of course, they had the, the, the guidance, the leadership, the inspiration, the models of their lamas, who are the most highly respected people in the whole community. That's true. And what are the lamas teaching them? You know, get guns. Here's, here's, your, here's a bomb to strap on. Here's a suicide bomb. Here's the hand grenades. Here's poison to put in the water. No, nothing remotely like that, of course. No. What are the lamas telling them? The tragedy we experience, the genocide, the personal misery, and so forth that we've gone through. It's just the maturation of our own karma. And our karma just catalyzed the behavior of the Chinese communists. And there it is. So let it be. Let it be. And now let's not accumulate any negative further, ne further negative comment with hostility, hatred, vengeance, violence, and so forth. Let's deal with the present. Let's look to the future and release the past, because this is just a maturation of our own karma. And what did not come out of that, interestingly, because they're teaching this to Tibetans, and I never saw an indication of this happening, what did not come out was guilt. Oh, we Tibetans, we must be awful people. I must be an awful person, because I lost my wife, I lost my children, I lost this. I, oh, I must be a despicable, awful sinner because otherwise I wouldn't have had all this catastrophe come to me. Never comes up. They, they didn't come up. It's just, no, in past life, in some previous incarnation, the seeds were sown. Now they're, being, now they're coming to fruition. So let, us, let it be purified. Let it be purified. And, lay, and let the seeds that I'm sowing now be positive seeds, wholesome seeds so that I just don't re do a repeat performance of this and have to reenact it all over again. So what I'm speaking about here is this is not abstract Buddhist philosophy for egghead philosophers sitting in a, in a study writing a paper. This is people who are on the front lines. Right? 
their belief in karma was absolutely life-transforming. Really, deeply. Their sense of refuge, deeply life-transforming. Their faith in the gurus and their lamas, deeply life-transforming. For me to be with these poorest people I'd ever met, and finally the happiest people I'd ever met. And they're not just kind of sitting around being happy and poor. They were energetic. They were looking to the future. They were establishing new schools and monasteries and craft centers and so getting education, getting their kids to school. It was very impressive, right? So I think, I'm sure, that it was their awareness, this extended memory, this extended memory, the past is influencing us in the present moment, that is past actions, but here we are in the present, let's make the best of this now, and so hard working. And then now, as they are sowing seeds through their own conduct of body, speech, and mind, they're anticipating as they're dedicating merit, as they're dedicating the merit, from the simplest shepherd, nomad, farmer, and so forth, very standard practice, dedicating the merits by, by the virtue of this action, as they're offering incense in the temple, or going to see the Lama and receiving some teachings, and it's finished by the merit of this, by the merit of this, the, of this virtue, by the power of this virtue, and then they'll offer their prayers, and their prayers are for the future. So they're living in a large world where the attention's very much, very practical, and these are not meditators, most of them. They're just simple people, but they're living in a Buddhist worldview, very much attending to the present, but they're aware of the past, the influence of the past on the present. They're aware that their present is creating their future. And so this, too, is, is mind-expanding. And I'll end on this note, because I quote it so often, I love to quote it, but it's, I think it may very well be the, the prayer that His Holiness Dalai Lama quotes more often than any other from the 10th chapter of Shantideva's A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. Now, how is this for mind-expanding? For as long as space remains, for as long as sentient beings remain, so long may I remain to alleviate the suffering of the world. So suddenly space-time continuum has gotten awfully large. And it's an expansion of the mind cognitively, for as long as space remains. You mean multiple expansion and contractions of the universe from a big bang and then coming back to a big crunch? Yeah, we're talking about multiple ones. Right? And not only one universe, but multiverses. So while one is expanding, another one's contracting, and so forth. And how many? Oh, inconceivable number. I think my, my brain's about to jump out of my head. You know, whoa. That space, huh? And then since beginning this time, not just a mere you know, finger snap of 13.7 billion years since the last Big Bang, but for as long as space remains, until every single sentient being is free, May I continue to come, to be present, to be of service, until the, the suffering of all has been alleviated. It's really mind expanding, cognitively and from the heart, mind and heart both. Yeah? It's just core Buddhism. Just. I think it's very powerful. Very powerful. Okay. Let's read one, then we'll go. Yep. I hope that was useful. Sometimes I just run on. I hope it's useful. If it's not, somebody can write me a note. <laughs> Anonymously, please. Okay. Oh, and I'm going to put aside the one about um, silence, I think. Yes, there we go. That one's finished. These are short. Here's a really short one. What is the difference between thought and realization? And from Jane, Jane Sar Sargent. There she is. So thought and realization. If you'll, if you'll permit me, I'd like to extend your question a bit more in a very interesting way. 
that I find very useful. And that is when we are receiving teachings, whether on a practice or a certain view, some nature of consciousness, whatever, as we're attending the teachings, and this is by way of hearing, that, that's the classic way, that you're first introduced to teachings not by reading something, but by hearing it. Hearing it from your mama, hearing it from your village lama when you're five years old and getting some teachings from the village lama, or from your dad or an uncle who was a monk or what have you. But generally speaking in traditional Tibet, traditional Buddhism throughout Asia, the first contact with teachings, as in Buddha Dhamma teachings, and others as well, is through hearing. You're getting it from someone who knows, and so you're getting a transmission, whether it's cabinet making, whether it's flower arranging, whether it's learning how to shoot a, shoot a bow and arrow, what have you, whatever it may be. And so as you're being instructed, there arises the first level of understanding. Okay? First level of understanding is called the understanding arising from hearing. And that is, did you understand it conceptually? Did it, did it, are you bewildered? Are you confused? Are you vague, muddled? Or did you get it? Did you get it? Well, t show me that you got it. Tell me, tell me how you do it. And then you, you tell me back. Here's how you practice mindfulness of breathing at the belly. And then you describe, what, what's the practice? And then Jane says, this is how I've understood it. And then she says, this is how you do this practice. Mindfulness of breathing with the rise and fall of the abdomen. This is how you do it. The arousal, the release. You may introduce counting, the count comes, and so forth and so on. And I listen, if I'm the teacher, and I listen and I said, yep, you have the understanding from hearing. You, gave, you, you were able to narrate it back, and I know that was not a tape recording, it was not a parrot. You've understood it, and in your own words, then you're telling me, and yes, you, you've got it. You have the understanding from hearing. That's called goa in Tibetan, goa, which means just understanding, right? But now, if I can continue with this analogy, or this instance, this example, let's imagine then that you not only have understood it, but you're drawn to practice it. You're, you're, you'd like to practice it, and you do. And you come back a, a day later, one session later, a week later, and you say, Alan, I tried that, and, um, and this was my experience. This was my experience, right? And then you narrate your experience. And you say, this, this is what it was like. So now you've done, now there's, there's another level of understanding that comes, and it's the understanding, it's no longer, no, no longer even called understanding. It's called experience. Have you done it? Have you tasted it? And yes, I've tasted it, and this is what it was like. Tell me, good, tell me what it was like. And I said, oh yes, this is authentic experience. That's what it's like to practice mindfulness of breathing at the abdomen. Yes, you've got it. You're right on the right track. Carry on. Okay? So that's understanding. That's experience. Experience. And then beyond experience, that's nyongwa. And then in Tibetan, the next one is topa. And topa is realization. Topa is realization. And this is where there's something to be known. Something to be known. Now, in shamatha, it's primarily technology. It's primarily just transforming the mind. But let's, let's just shift to another topic. Meditation on impermanence. Okay? On impermanence. This is where you're closely applying your refined mindfulness right to the present moment and detecting these very subtle momentary events arising in the space of the mind, the space of the body. You're seeing these little flashes of emotions coming, feelings arising, passing, thoughts and images. You're seeing this stochastic array of just everything constantly in a state of flux. Imagine I first give you just the instruction. Here's how you practice close application of mindfulness to the mind as an insight practice. And then you come back to me and you show, yes, you've understood how to do it. You practice it a bit, yet you're practicing it correctly. You're getting the experience. That's how you do the practice. And then you go deeper. 
And then you come to me after what, days, weeks, months, whatever, and say, Alan, I was practicing, and suddenly there was a shift, a kind of breakthrough. And any notion of anything being, anything being solid, enduring, persisting through time, that vanished. And I felt everything I was experiencing was utterly fluid, effervescent, fizzing, sparkling. But nothing staying. Nothing had any duration at all. It would just rise and pass. And everything appeared to me in that way. There was nothing to grasp onto. And so I found my experience of attachment just got dissolved. Because how? It's like standing in front of a waterfall and thinking I'm going to grab it. It's silly even to try. You wouldn't think of trying because there's nothing to grab onto. And this was a radical shift in my way of perceiving reality that I could see there's nothing to grasp onto and therefore nothing to feel attachment for because it's ludicrous to have attachment with this view of reality. And then you say, Jane, you've just gained realization. You know something you didn't know before and you don't know it just intellectually. You got it. It shifted your way of viewing reality itself. You've gained realization. And nobody can take it away from you. But it can fade. It can fade. And so, in this hypothetical, the retreat's over. You go back. You're caught up in a myriad of activities, surrounded by people who are just enmeshed in a whole network of attachments. They glom onto you with attachment. They want you to be attached to them. Why? Don't you care about me anymore, Jane? Have you become an ascetic? You, why don't you care about me anymore? I feel that you don't miss me anymore. And they want you to be attached to them. Because otherwise they feel you're not paying attention. Because you know? love and attachment, after all, are the same. Right? And so it can fade. And that which was realized gets unrealized. So for this, on the one hand, fusing your realization with shamatha, which is then back to technology, relaxation, stability, vividness, so that as you're engaging now in a very different environment, different people, and so forth, that realization is carrying through. And then finally, and this is how I'm going to give this, end this elaborate explanation to a simple question. There's something called ding topa in Tibetan. And this really comes about by the fusion of shamatha vipassana. So you're clear on that. But now let's imagine vipassana with respect to impermanence, right? That ding topa means you've achieved confidence. You've achieved confidence. You've achieved a, a depth of insight that now does not fade. Wherever you go, this is now part of you. It's, it's like your bone marrow. It's like your blood. It's like you can't be separated from it. It went so deep that that insight, with that sharp, sharp blade of vipassana wielded with the steadiness and the clarity of shamatha, got so deep that the contrary vision of reality as being composed of chunky stuff that abides through time, that more or less stay the same. The people I really loved, kind of the same. And my objects, oh, it's the same cell phone. It's just as new as now as it was when I bought it. Sure, I'm sure it, it doesn't, uh, oh, what a, ah, oh, crap. I think it got dented. That wasn't supposed to happen. That really, that, oh, oh, man. I thought I had a really good iPhone, but it, I think it's dented. And it's such a surprise. You know. Well, not if you have ding topa, not if you've gained confidence in your realization of impermanence. You know that that's just, what you're looking at right now is a, an iPhone and the state of decomposition. 
you could put it in space and it will still decompose. Even if it doesn't com collide with anything, after a while, it'll just fall apart. Because it's collected, therefore it will fall apart. And it doesn't need outside aid, although this iPhone will almost certainly get it. You know, collision this, collision that. So that's maybe more than you wanted, but I find that sequence very helpful. And then not to conflate one for the other. That understanding is not experience. Knowing how to, knowing how to narrate, how to cook some food, is not the same as having cooked the food and tasted it. And experience is not the same as realization. And realization is not the same as this achieving confidence. Okay? Oh, yeah. So now from the floor. Andreas, does it linger from Saturday? Okay, you're on. Um, my question on Saturday was that uh, many times in meditation, I don't know what happens or anything, but I know sometimes I feel some peace. I feel, I feel I some peace. Pe peace, yes. And relaxation. Yes. But in the meditation, if I try to understand, is, is this the space of the mind and its contents, or is it, you know, if I try to analyze what is happening, then I'm losing it. And, it, uh, and in hindsight, it's also difficult to know what was going on. Very good question. So yeah. should I, how should I, should I try to analyze it, or is it better to leave it for the moment and just let mm -hmm. it happen? Very good, very good question. Excuse me. <coughs> shamatha as such, shamatha practice, as such, just by definition or the way it's taught methodologically over many, many centuries now, doesn't in itself entail analysis, per se, of really trying to figure out, probing in, asking questions, seeking, seeking answers. Uh, that can be part, and is, can very much be part, of vipassana practice, where one is probing into, seeking, inquiring, contemplating. But shamatha tends to be a, more of a sheer placement, a placement of the attention upon a given object, space of the mind and its contents, or whatever it may be. That said, though, authentic shamatha practice always entails a flow of knowing. Now, not knowing much, because it's, it's single-pointed, it's very unified, very focused, composed attention. So if you're focusing on the space of the mind and its contents, there's an ongoing flow of knowing. So when something does come to mind, a thought or an image, it arises, it presents itself to you, you respond knowing it. And then, okay, this is practicing shamatha. And then there's an interval between thoughts. And you know that. So remember, that was the very entryway into settling the mind. And that is, can you distinguish in the space of the mind when there is stillness and when there is motion? So knowing that, that's the entrance. If you don't know that, then you haven't begun practicing yet, right? But even when there's no activity taking place, still sustaining the flow of knowing that sheer, silent, empty space of the mind and knowing that, and if you're on target, as soon as something, something does crop up in that space, you'll know it immediately. So likewise, an awareness of awareness it's the easiest one to space out in. So it's get very, very pleasant, kind of nebulous, and then just peaceful, but then really not knowing anything, just kind of having gone blank. In which case, that's no longer shamatha practice. That's called dullness or laxity. And so even aware, in awareness, awareness, there needs to be this flow of knowing something. And since it is shamatha, you're seeking to know one thing. And what is that one thing? I know awareness. Awareness knows awareness. And you're sustaining that flow of knowing. If that fades, 
or if you're practicing mindfulness of breathing and you're just peaceful, but you're no longer engaged with the breath, that rope of mindfulness has been cut and you're just kind of like, like a kite for which the string is, has been cut and it's just kind of fluttering in the, in, in the sky, then that's a fault. Then you want to come back and know again. It doesn't entail analysis, but it does entail, entail reconnecting. And so this is why, especially with respect to excitation, I give in the three R's as a response. That is, you recognize excitation with introspection, and then you relax, good, release that which captured you, and then release. So relax, first of all, just loosen up, because the automatic response is going to be contract out of frustration or what have you. So first of all, relax, then release that which captivated the attention, but then all importantly, return and reconnect with your objective meditation. Does that answer your question? Not really, okay. because um, Fire well, again. I, I, I would think it's um, probably I don't practice shamatha because I, I try, but even just trying to follow some instructions, it gets too difficult. So I, I just sit there and sometimes I feel some peace, some quiet. Peace and quiet, yeah. Um, and that's good, but I, I don't know why it happens or, and I to follow the instructions, my mind is too... It's too chaotic to to too be chaotic. Yeah, mm -hmm. I cannot follow any instructions. So, uh -huh. so in in that scenario, does it really matter? I mean, it does. If I try to analyze what was happening, like may, possibly I was experiencing sp the space of the mind and its contents. Mm -hmm. But if I start analyzing, it takes me further away from the experience. Like, and it's difficult to know afterwards what was really yeah. going on. Yeah, when we analyze then pretty much this implies getting up, getting caught, caught uh, deliberately getting caught up in a conceptual process. Asking conceptual questions and then looking conceptually, trying to come to a conceptually satisfying answer, like figuring out a math problem or something like that. And if one is caught up in concepts, probing questions with concepts, seeking conceptual answers, that's definitely not shamatha. That's definitely not shamatha, right? Um, I think I'm going to be a little bit bold or maybe a little bit... So overconfident here as I respond. I think you're probably not giving yourself as much credit as is due. I don't think it's as bad as how you describe. That you're so confused you can't, you can't follow instructions at all and you don't know anything. You're just feeling utterly spaced out, nebulous, but at least it's peaceful. I think my intuition is, I think it's better than that. And I may, I may, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm not saying I'm completely spaced out. I mean, eventually I get to some kind of peace and I don't think it's worthless or anything, but I, I, I don't know what, what is happening if it's yeah. this meditation or that meditation. I don't, when I'm sitting in my room, I don't know right. what is going well, on. I think before you came here, my sense is that you're already familiar with open presence, choiceless awareness. You didn't learn them here. You, you already were familiar with them before, yes? A little bit. Or not? I, I, I think that I don't know what's happening. <laughs> yeah, but, but you, you, you introduced these terms. Uh, which I, I welcomed the last time you raised it, of choiceless awareness, open presence. Uh, what, what does that mean? So as, as I did hypothetically with Jane, I'll do now real for you, but it's not a quiz, it's not a test at all. But when you practice this just open awareness, a choiceless awareness, how would you describe to me, if I don't really understand what you're doing, how would you describe, so I can understand, how would you describe, what are you doing? Uh, I, I sit with no specific intention or aim, yeah. and I just let whatever happens happen, and I don't care. Don't care, yeah. yeah. And what do you do with your attention? Do you just kind of 
mm, totally space out, or do you take an interest in what's arising in the, in the six fields of experience? Kind of, I let my attention do whatever <laughs> it yeah. does, and I don't care about my attention. <laughs> I just yeah, <laughs> this, is, this is perfectly good. Now, when your attention, so in other words, you're letting the dog off the leash, and it, can has, it has six playgrounds or six fields to run around in, and the dog just goes wherever it likes, right? Yeah, good. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not shamatha, but then so what? We're, we're, not, we're not bound and gagged to just do shamatha when we're here. Um, but now, when your attention does rove, you just let it do what it will, and it goes off to a certain object, you hear a sound. Are you aware that you're hearing a sound? Do you know, your, do you know yeah. the sound that you're hearing? Uh, difficult question. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Sure. Yeah. When you do, see, this is the point. In open presence, choiceless awareness, bare attention. Sometimes these, are, sometimes these are used interchangeably, and they can be very useful. It's not shamatha, but they didn't say it was shamatha, so why should it be shamatha, right? Um, in these practices, if you are maintaining a flow of engaged mindfulness, that a sound comes up and you note it, you don't have to label it, but you do note it. You discern it, you recognize it, ascertain it. And then a feeling in the knee comes up. And you just and so there the dog ran off to the knee. And then, you're aware, and then you're aware of a thought coming up. And you're aware of the thought coming up. You ascertain it such that if I tapped you on the shoulder, Andreas, what was the last thing that came to mind? You say, I just saw a thought come up. It was an image of a dog I had when I was 13 years old, and I remember the dog very clearly. And that's the image that came up. I say, good, you knew that. And so if you're maintaining a flow of knowing that is you know, clear but relaxed, and so whatever is coming up, you're attending to it and knowing it, then that's good enough. That's good enough. If the mind is so unclear when, when sitting in that practice that you're not quite sure of knowing anything, then I would suggest being more engaged. Yoga can be very good for this. Yoga can be very good for this because when you're practicing very mindful yoga, then you, and Kim, get a, give, I'm sure, has given a lot of instruction on this. When you're adopting a certain asana, you should be very aware. Is your, when, I, when, when I learned yoga from Iyengar, he was saying, do you feel the outside of your left foot firmly touching the ground? And there's either a yes or no answer to that. But are you aware of the outside of your left foot? As you're stretching in this direction, is the outside of your left foot really firmly in touch with the ground? Yes or no? See, check, know it, right? And when you're stretching here, is your arm straight or is it crooked? When you're, and so he's bringing, he's inviting a lot of somatic intelligence that when you're going from one posture to another, you're vividly aware the shoulder stand, the head stand, whatever it may be, you really know how your posture is, right? So you're not just spacing out, you're doing very, very mindful yoga. And I think, frankly, in terms of traditional yoga, you don't really need to add the word mindful, because they assume all along that you're not doing it mindlessly, right? So it's nice to speak of mindful yoga nowadays. That's just going back to what they intended in the first place. So yoga can be very good for that. Uh, I've never really practiced, no, I'll just say I haven't practiced, but Tai Chi. Tai Chi, and so I'm sure that some people have practiced it here. It's very gentle, it's very smooth, very soft movement, and I'm not doing it, by the way. I'm just moving my hands. <laughs> but um, when you're doing this, also you're very, very mindful. This, this much I know, because I, I had a lesson or two a long time ago, that you're utterly present with the movements of your body, the flow of the body, the flow of the energy in the body, and so you're knowing something. Qigong is the same thing. And then in athletics, it's the same thing, that you're very aware of the body. I played tennis, so you're aware of, okay, now, 
Are you reaching to full extent when you're reaching up to serve? Are you giving it full extension or are you being a bit slouchy? Go for full extension. You'll get a lot more spin on the ball. And so for things that are physically engaged, I think that could be very helpful here. Because there's something you really must be doing and it's physical and you're knowing it. And then going from there into the Shavasana, the corpse position, and say, look, now you're in a particular posture. I want you to bring the same knowing to this posture that you had when you were in the Trikonasana, Asana. And so another Asana. There you're very attentive. Now you're in this one where you've gone into total meltdown. I want you to be utterly attentive. Do you feel your torso? Do you feel the legs, the thighs, the head? Do you feel the sensations of the breath flowing through the body? Attend, know this, be engaged. Maintain that flow of attentive, engaged mindfulness, and you're knowing something. So from the ground up, this is a really good basis, and that's what I would encourage. So, and in the midst of all of that, a lot of peace, a sense of surrendering and looseness can definitely come up. Okay? That's, about, that's, that's as good as I can give right now. But the, the physical activity, in so many traditions, East Asia with the Tai Chi, the Qigong, India uh, with the yoga, they really do come into the body first, know something, know your body, and then you can move on to knowing your breathing, and then you can go on to knowing your mind, then you can go on to knowing your substrate consciousness, and then the path of knowing just gets deeper and vaster. Okay? Good, good. You can always ask it again, but that's the best I can offer right now. And, oh ho. So we made it through two, um, and I'll keep the two, other two for tomorrow. It's dinner time. So know what you're eating. Know whether you can digest it or not. Know how much is enough and not too much. All that jazz. So eating mindfully. The Vipassana tradition is the best one I know in the world for that. Eating mindfully. Doesn't mean you have to eat slow, but eat mindfully is good. See you later.